The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jaguer. Presenting Season 8, Collision. Rubicon, Part 2. Written by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin. People's Blade sniffed, then motioned with her left hand. Kill him. We don't have the time to waste with such interference. The first three rushed him headlong. John somehow knew the angles they would be coming at, where they would attack, where they would try to land blows. Whether they would attack him with guns or knives or barehanded or some more esoteric weapon. It all flashed in his mind just before it happened. With his reflexes, he had all the time he needed. The first of the three squeezed off a burst from his rifle, while the other two ran at him from the sides. John felt where the shots were going to go, and simply wasn't there when the bullets crossed that piece of space. He sent a flash of flame at the face of the one with the rifle, making the man reflexively flail backwards as his arms and head caught fire. John moved on the merc coming at him from the right. Smoothly, he sidestepped the merc's lunging knife, grabbing the man's outstretched arm. With a sharp tug, he carried the man, knife first, into the third man, the one that was still rushing from the left, pistol in hand. The knife plunged into the third merc's chest. John ignited both of them, then sent the tangled pair skittering across the deck and out the destroyed cargo door with a backwards kick. They fell, screams vanishing into the distance. The rest of the mercs were momentarily stunned. I said, kill him. Now. Fire. People's blades stepped back as the remaining mercs raised their guns again. John dashed forward, juking first to the left, then committing to the right. The mercs all began firing at once, the noise deafening in the confined space. The rounds stitched holes in the fuselage, but none found their mark. They were all good shots, highly trained and used to working together. John was just too fast for them, anticipating where they were aiming and then not being there. John ducked under a burst from the closest mercenary, then unholstered his own 1911 and shot the man twice in the face, still moving. Instinctively, he knew he would have to use his fire sparingly. Nothing would be won if he set the entire plane ablaze. Time seemed to slow down, and he was moving faster than he ever had. It wasn't just his enhancements, but something more. Something from his connection to Sarah. The next merc was in the center of the cargo hold and had run his weapons magazine dry. John slid next to him smoothly, just as the man finished reloading. He jerked the submachine gun from the merc's grasp so hard that the strap broke, sending the merc to the floor face first. John finished the job by stomping on the back of the merc's head with a sickening crack. Then he was moving again. He crouched behind a metal crate for half a beat before springing out from cover again. Four quick bursts from the rifle, and four more mercs went down, dead or dying. The submachine gun was empty, so he threw it as hard as he could at one of the mercs at the back. The man caught the world hunk of metal and plastic full in the face, and was knocked out cold. John still had his pistol. He had to keep moving, otherwise they'd concentrate their fire and be able to pin him down. The last two standing were spread out, on opposite sides of the cargo hold. John went for the one on the right, first. He ran, ducking and weaving so that the merc couldn't get a clear shot. When he was next to the man, he grabbed the merc by his vest and planted the barrel of his 1911 under the man's chin. With a grunt, 
He pulled the trigger, and that was the end of that. The limp body still in his grasp, he spun it around so that it was between him and the other merc. The merc on the other side of the hold started firing, stitching his comrade's body and the surrounding fuselage with more holes. John felt a round impact with the shoulder of his nanoweave jacket. He knew the round would be slowed down going through the dead body, and thus the damage was minimal. John swung his pistol around the side of the dead merc's body, emptying the magazine into his target, starting at the pelvis and working his way up until the last round left a round and messy hole in the merc's skull. The merc he had thrown the submachine gun at was now waking up. He dropped the dead merc he'd been holding. All of the bullets he had taken had left him less than intact, before holstering his 1911 again. Looking down at his feet, he saw the first merc that had shot at him, moaning from the burns on his arms and head. John hefted the man up by his belt and the drag handle on the back of his gear, and held him up between himself and the groggy merc. Both mercs screamed, one from fear, one from rage, as the final merc completely emptied his weapon into John's human shield. John dropped the burned and now very dead merc, the body crumpling to the floor. Very calmly, he walked up to the final merc. He could see the fear in the man's eyes as he reflexively was still pulling the trigger on his empty rifle. With his right hand, he grabbed the merc by the throat and then lifted him off of the ground. John looked People's Blade in the eye as he ignited his hand, and the fire spread to the merc he was holding. His scream started low before building up into a high-pitched wail. When the man's entire body was covered in flame, John turned and threw him at the back of the plane, where he hit the edge of the ruined cargo door, before falling into the darkening sky. John felt as if he was holding a live wire. Everything he saw had a harder, cleaner edge to it. He noticed tiny details, like the head stamp on an empty shell casing, or the pattern the bullet holes in the fuselage made, the smell of blood and burned paint and metal, the cooked smell of burned flesh, the strangely crisp scent of scorched fabric, the acrid stench of melted plastic. He drank in all of this instantaneously. His heart rate was steady and even. He had just brutally killed twelve men, and while that faintly disgusted him, he realized that, far from being repulsed by what he had done, he didn't care all that much. There was something much more important occupying his emotions. They were hurting her, and were trying to stop him. Sarah was the only thing that mattered. People's Blade drew her sword, although she did not otherwise move. Her eyes narrowed, and John had the strangest feeling that there was something alien looking out at him from inside that tiny body. You would be well advised to leave now, the diminutive woman stated in a flat voice and with a strange accent he didn't recognize. This is Jade Emperor's whisper, and not even a creature imbued with celestial power can stand against it. We have this female, and we will keep her until we have no more use for her. I'm not leaving, and you're not keeping her. Let her go right this second, and I won't kill you. What the commissar will do, I can't vouch for, however. John paced slowly towards her, stopping about ten feet away. Sarah was behind People's Blade now, still in her cage, she wasn't moving. John couldn't even tell if she was breathing. The woman smiled slightly. 
hubris. How American. It is what it is. Cut her loose, or get ready to die, comrade. John put extra venom into the final word, spitting it out like a curse. John ignited both of his hands, his body relaxed, but ready to spring into action. Faster than he thought was possible, People's Blade charged him, sword raised high. Even with the wind screaming from the back of the plane and the noise of the engines, John's enhanced hearing should have picked up something. But she didn't make a single sound as she ran straight at him. He didn't have any time to blast her, draw his pistol, or take any meaningful defensive action. She was just that quick, almost as fast as he was. He hadn't been expecting it, and, unlike with the mercs, he hadn't seen ahead of time what she was going to do. Reflexively, he threw his flaming hand up just as she was bringing the sword down to split him through the middle. John shut his eyes at the last second. He had failed, and now he and Sarah were both dead. Vic, you had better keep that promise. There was a too loud crash, and John felt a flash of heat in front of his face. He opened his eyes and found himself holding what looked like a large sword. A claymore, something in the back of his mind told him, composed entirely of flame. It held Jade Emperor's whisper on its edge, away from both of them. People's Blade looked up at her weapon, and then at his, her eyes wide with genuine shock. Impossible! John knew he had to end this, and end it quickly. For whatever reason, he couldn't anticipate what the little woman was going to do the way he had for the mercs. And he knew nothing about sword fighting, where she was an expert. He had to take advantage of this moment of surprise. He shoved her hard with his free hand, then grasped his own sword with both hands. With his taller frame and longer sword, he had more reach. But she was just as fast as he was, and had experience to match. She immediately lunged at him, following with a flurry of blows that he was barely able to block. Her attacks were calculated, but there was an edge of fury behind them. She hadn't expected him to still be alive, or a challenge to her, and have the insolence to be fighting back, and that simply enraged her. He had the advantage that his sword weighed nothing. Hers was solid steel and had weight and heft. He could move his weapon around faster than a comparable steel sword, his augmented strength making up for the lack of weight behind the swings. Just as People's Blade was about to make a cut at his thigh that he couldn't block in time, the entire cargo plane bucked violently. Both of them fell to the floor as the center of gravity shifted. The plane had abruptly gone into a dive. John looked at the cockpit. The door had slammed open, revealing that there weren't any pilots, only complicated apparatuses connected to the controls and panels. Some kind of fly-by-wire drone? Whoever held the controller must have figured that it was safer to crash the plane than risk John winning. Both he and People's Blade clambered to their feet, swords pointed at each other. You will not win, barbarian. You cannot win. I will not have you interfere with my destiny. People's Blade was almost vibrating with rage now, seething through clenched teeth. You know, I don't have time for this shit. John lowered his sword, then held out his left hand. A pencil-thin bolt of super-hot plasma lanced out, spearing Fei Li through the center of her chest, punching through her back before impacting with a bulkhead and causing a small explosion. 
People's blade looked down at her chest in confusion, then raised her eyes to meet his. Something behind them softened, and she smiled gratefully as she sank to her knees. Thank you, she whispered as the sword clattered to the floor beside her. Her voice was different, nothing like it had been moments before. Finally, she closed her eyes as she crumpled to the floor. John didn't have time to think about it. The plane was on fire now and going down. He had to get Sarah out of here. He ran to where she was caged. He recognized the construction of the restraints as very similar to something that the CCCP had recovered from a blacksnake outpost that he had raided when the commissar had first tasked him with hunting down People's Blade. Not that he remembered this, of course, but he had seen the pictures in the AAR. It was covered in symbols. Some of them seemed to be vibrating and glowing, and somehow he could read some of it. Powerful binding words. He didn't have the time to process it. He brought the sword, still in hand, down on the joints of the cage, then on the chains. Instinctively, he knew it was meant to hold someone, an angel, in, not to keep someone out. Sarah. It lacerated his soul just to see her like this. Her wings were twisted into unnatural shapes, and he thought he saw bone ends sticking through the feathers. She was cut, burned, bruised, and bloody. She lay still as if she had just been tossed into the cage and had not moved since. Was she even still breathing? She couldn't be conscious. John extinguished the flames on his hands as well as his sword. She felt like a doll in his arms as he scooped her off of the floor. Come on, darling, we're getting out of here. This isn't our flight. John ran towards the back of the cargo plane. More of it was on fire now, and some of the electrical systems were blowing out in showers of sparks. When John saw at the exit of what was left of the ramp, he stopped short. Oh, fucking hell. I sure hope this works. With that, he took the final step off, and both of them were falling through the sky. The wind was blinding again, and he had to almost completely shut his eyes against it. John had been trained in parachute drops, but it helped if you actually had a chute for those. He was able to keep his body stable and was facing towards the earth, which was starting to look much bigger. He chanced a look over his shoulder. The plane was even more fully engulfed than he had realized and was continuing its nosedive. It looked like something else fell off of or out of the plane. I hope it doesn't land on us. The ground was still rushing towards them, and John's flight hadn't kicked in again. Think, think, how'd you do it before? Oh, come on. Then, again, that whisper in his mind. You must fly, beloved. Fly. The words were so loaded with agony, and yet they were freighted with terrible, frightening power. Power that rushed into him as if he was trying to drink from a fire hose. They had to be less than one hundred feet from the ground when the plume of fire burst from his feet and legs with a jolt, and just like that, they were flying. John whooped, his voice lost in the rushing wind. He looked down at Sarah, and immediately his smile vanished. She was dying. Worse, she was giving up, no longer fighting against it. He had to hurry. Shielding her and his face, he closed his eyes and willed himself to go faster. 
Long minutes seemed like an eternity to John, insulated from everything with his eyes closed and the wind making him deaf. He felt like he was getting close to where he wanted to go, so he slowed his speed and cracked open his eyes. They were back in Atlanta, and he was near his squat. Vic, are you on the line? The frantic sound of his own voice came as a shock even to him. Here. I got her. She's in a bad way and I can't move her anymore. I'm taking her to my squat. Send whatever you can. She's not going to make it for much longer without help. Scrambling Echo Med now. He landed with a flare of fire from his legs, like retro rockets, scorching the asphalt of the roof. He wanted to lay Sarah down on the roof and, at the same time, was afraid to. Afraid, if he let go of her, she would let go of the last bond she had to life. Afraid that only his raw will was keeping her tethered to her poor shattered body. So he stumbled forward, out of the overheated area where he'd landed, and knelt with her still in his arms, limp, bloodied, and broken. So very, very broken. Sarah! He choked out then, out of desperation, squeezed his eyes tight shut and tried that wordless communication she had just used with him. Sarah, he thought at her, and fumbled for some sense of her. His eyes were closed, and yet it was as if he was looking down a long, dark tunnel, and she was at the end of it. She looked back at him, over her shoulder then away from him, as if the mere sight of him brought her unbearable pain. And suddenly, he was flooded with images, with entire whole thoughts. Visions of himself, but powerful, wise in a way he couldn't even fathom himself being. Images of himself wielding the fires as she had, as weapons, as protections, immensely powerful, infinitely precise. Images of himself somehow connected with... Everything. Past. Present. And future. You are the man you should have been before you were broken. Stronger. Great-hearted. No longer beset with guilt and grief. No longer plagued by doubt and self-loathing. You will become the instrument of the infinite, so much more suited than I ever was. You understand free will. It is a part of you, hammered into your soul. You know what it is to be mortal, as I did not. You will be both more and less than I was, and both are important. I give you the last of my power, my strength. You will see the way through the darkness of these days and into the light. And he suddenly understood what that was supposed to mean, understood everything she meant, what she had determined, what she was giving up. Even now, what she was sacrificing... Because she was no longer a seraphim or even an angel. Because she had given all of that to him, selflessly, and she was going to the other side, not knowing what she would become or what she would find when she got there. Merely whatever it was a mortal became when she died? 
no longer able to hear the chorus of her siblings. She didn't even know not for certain that she had done the right thing. She knew only that she would have sacrificed everything, and the only thing she dared to hope for was to hear the words, Well done, my faithful servant, when she let go of life. He reacted instantly to that thought. No. He couldn't let her do this. He could taste her fear, and fear was something so very foreign to her. But there was nothing before her now but loneliness and uncertainty, and so she feared. She was sacrificing herself a second time to save the world, yes, but also to save him. Giving up her power, giving up that connection with whatever it was that was beyond— and doing so without reward as she had knowingly given up any hope of regaining the first and only mortal love she had ever known, so that he, he would be free to make unfettered choices. Him. And he didn't even remember any of it. He felt her in his mind. She was drifting into darkness. He reached out for her, willing her to stay. She retreated from him, and he pursued, pushing frantically through the dark, desperate to reach her before she was irrevocably out of reach. For a moment, she vanished, and he thought with a flare of terror that he had lost her. But then he saw her again, poor broken wings dragging from her back like a tattered cloak, illuminated as if by a spotlight in the darkness, looking up, yearning upwards. He hurried to her side and saw that she was staring upwards into a blinding light, with every fiber of her speaking how much she wanted to reach that light. And yet, she couldn't. It was out of reach. She could no longer fly. Still staring into the light, with soundless tears pouring from her eyes, she sank to her knees. She seemed faded. Her once vivid colors muted, grayed out, as if she had lost everything that had made her vital and alive. Her hair, her tattered wings, now the color of dying roses, her eyes a pale gray, her skin like old paper. Everything about her posture spoke of pain and resignation. She was Moses gazing upon the promised land, yearning for it, and knowing that it was being withheld from her. And he knew without knowing how he knew that if this was all that would be granted her, then this was what she would accept, with resignation and grace. Go, he heard in his mind. I have given you the last of what I held. I release you from any obligations. Go. For the briefest moment... Some dark and self-centered, primordial part of him wanted to leave her there, to take the power that she offered for himself. What works could he accomplish with such power? Every one that had ever wronged him would be punished. His will would be absolute. As quickly as the thought came, he banished it from his mind. No. I'm not going to leave you, Sarah. I'm not going to let you fade. Though he could hear her thoughts, it seemed she could not hear his. Why will you not leave?
there was an edge of anger to her thoughts, even though her face remained statue-blank, except for the tears pouring down her face. You do not want to be the man you were. You do not wish to be obligated to me. I release you from both those things. Now go and leave me. You need not concern yourself any further. John saw in his mind as she started to fail, fading more and more. She's letting go. It felt as if every single fiber of his being were crying out at once, willing her not to give up, to stay alive. He had the vaguest sense that the outside world from whatever this place was had gone completely still, frozen. This was the moment, and everything had stopped until an outcome was decided. John focused, digging deep, trying desperately to reach something, anything that would help. In the periphery of his mind, he heard the music pick up again, different and familiar. He grasped for it. No, that wasn't right. He embraced it. Sarah had said. No, Vicky had said this was the thing that held them together. Whatever it was, so if this held them together, couldn't he use it to hold her to life? In that moment, John knew why Sarah called it the song as a proper noun, as if it was some sort of primal thing. It felt as if his whole consciousness was bombarded with every strain of music that had ever been or would ever be made, and even some that never could be. He saw things, felt things that he doubted any other mortal ever had, past, present, and future all blended together, whipping through his mind at light speed. It was terrifying, glorious, and all-encompassing. He was almost overwhelmed to the point where he lost sight of Sarah. And then he remembered. John reached down, taking her hand gently into his. Then he flew towards the light, carrying her lightly with him. They did not so much reach the light as the light reached them, opening up before them and then enveloping them. He sensed there was, somehow, an even greater light somewhere ahead, light in the sense of the song, but he also sensed that it was time to stop before they reached it. So they came to rest in a weightless state, cradled in the light. Together. He felt that he was made of light, as was Sarah, and yet, somehow, they were also Sarah and John. And his memories. His memories were returning. It didn't feel like he was changing, but rather like a fog was being lifted. It was disorienting for a moment, as his two different perspectives came back together. But he was still himself. He was still John Murdoch. His old pain, his old guilt, were both muted. He had the memory of them, but he didn't feel their burden anymore. He breathed in and let it out in a great sigh before he realized his eyes were still closed. So he opened them. Sarah was reviving like a flower that had been dying for lack of water and now was waking up to blessed rain. Slowly, 
her wings unfolded, only they weren't broken things of shattered bone and feathers. They were fire that was somehow feathers at the same time. Color had come back to her. More than color. Her hair was like moving, living flame. She seemed to be clothed in flames, and as she opened her eyes, he saw that they weren't that sad blue anymore. They were... They were exactly as he had known them for most of the time he had known her. Golden as the sun, without whites or pupils, glowing and enigmatic. Exactly as he remembered her. Now that he actually remembered. One hand went to her lips, as if something about him puzzled, perhaps even startled her. What? he heard in his mind. How? John smiled lopsidedly, moving forward to take her hands into his. Your guess is as good as mine, darling. Her eyes widened, and she was engulfed in fire and joy as she flung her arms about him. Beloved, she cried, and that was all that she said, but that was all she needed to say. I'm back, love, he thought. It was strange, communicating just by thinking it, but it also seemed to come easily for him. Sorry it took me so long. I guess I took the long way home. She rested her head on his chest, and they were quiet together for what could have been an age and could have been no time at all. They just basked in the comfort of each other, needing nothing else. It was only when a third presence spoke to them that they raised their heads together. Well done, my good and faithful servants, the presence said, or rather laughed. Not that it laughed at them, more it laughed for the pleasure of seeing a new creation, or that was the sense that John and Sarah shared. They both went still at the same instant, listening attentively. For the moment, at least, there was no fire of rebellion in John Murdoch. And yet it was rebellion on both your parts that has created the unforeseen, the third way, neither up nor down, neither right nor left, but through. This new thing that you have made together could not have been predicted, for it came from free will. And again, well done. By being willing to sacrifice all, you have gained all. You complete each other. Sibling, your experience as an immortal. Child, your experience as a mortal. You two will now be something more together. As you foresaw, sibling... This is the melding that will continue to allow you both to evolve new ways and create futures, rather than merely see them. John was the first to speak up. What do you mean by create futures? Only the mortal possess free will. The siblings are obedient to the will of the infinite, and so they are blinded. 
They can only see the futures that branch from the actions of the present. They cannot themselves deduce new actions and predict new futures. You, as a mortal, always had that gift of free will. Now you both do, and you both share some of the powers of the siblings. There was a sense of a sigh. It will be limited. You will never see the futures as she once did, for both of you are mortal, with only a fraction of the celestial now. But be content. If you got but a glimpse of what she once did, it would drive you mad. John held up one of his hands. That's fine by me, at least. I'm not sure I'd want to see the future like she did, even if I could. The song, Sarah faltered. I hear it now, but... It will never again, while you live, fill you as it once did. The voice turned tender. You will never again lose it, either. You will have this singular love to fill you as well. And I think you will find you do not need the song as much as you once did. You too, and your love, are for each other the connection to the song, and to this, the heart of all time. Again, there was the sense of delighted laughter. Love, oh yes, is always permitted. So, what happens now? Where do we go from here? John couldn't help but feel an urgent need to get back to the world. This place was wonderful and beautiful. But he didn't belong here, not yet. The futures are yours to decide. Free will. Take your first steps into the new possibilities. Where do you want to go? Beside him, Sarah was nodding, slowly, and he sensed a wonder in her that this precious gift of free will was now hers as well. He turned to look at Sarah for a moment before facing forward again, towards where he thought that the presence was, even though it felt as if it surrounded them. Back home, to Atlanta. He felt a smile creep into his face. We've got work to do. So let it be done. And that was all there was to it. With no sense of shock, he felt himself in his body again, kneeling on a warm surface that smelled of scorched asphalt and felt Sarah still cradled in his arms. Sirens wailed in the distance as he opened his eyes. Sarah was staring back into his eyes, smiling, beatific. Her eyes were blue again, but with gold glinting in the depths. And she was healed, whole. Hey there, darling. Nice to see you back with us. John gently brushed a strand of her hair from her eyes. Her arms tightened around his neck. And I say the same. Beloved. The sirens were growing closer. I think we can call off the cavalry for now. John paused, looking off to the side. Overwatch, reopen channel to Vix. 
Almost before the words were done leaving his mouth, the reply broke over the comms. Sagfish! Vicky shouted into his ear. Rosted egg you mick! What the hell just happened? Why were you offline? Talk, you fast fish! My head is ringing like the Liberty Bell, and I'm going to be seeing stars for an allotomous week. John winced. Somehow the volume and her cussing were ramped up on his comms. Take her easy, Vic. Call off the medical teams. Sarah's going to be all right. And I'm back. All the way back. Roger that? To Fez! Bella nearly wiped out the echo ambulance when you... Wait. What? There was a silence that practically was a sound in and of itself. You... What? Incredulity. Johnny? You're back? You mean, the old you? The hell you say? Well, not quite hell, but yeah, I'm back. You can commence cussing again at your leisure. Head over to CCCPHQ so I can get debriefed by everyone all at once. The siren stopped abruptly. Fix, stay on station. I'll divert to CCCP, Bella said, the relief in her voice so thick you could have cut it. Murdoch, all I can say is, this had better be one hell of a story. It will be, kiddo. See you at HQ in five. John looked down into Sarah's eyes again, felt his mouth relaxing into a grin, a fit match for her joyous smile. Better make that thirty. It's been a while since I've seen my wife. You have been listening to Collision, Season 8 of the Secret World Chronicle podcast novel series. Season 8 is written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jaguer. Music is Exciting Trailer by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. The Secret World Chronicle podcast is narrated and produced by Veronica Jaguer and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. The fourth book, Collision, is available in print and ebook in December 2014 from the amazing people at Bayon Books. For more information about the series or to listen to earlier seasons, check out www.secretworldchronicle.com. Want to chat with the authors and fellow SWC fans? Join the Secret World Chronicle group on Facebook. And, as always, thank you for listening.